This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 246. And we, we saw that happen. We saw the signs and we started trying to sell. We were starting to discount. We tried to sell for 85 cents in a dollar, 80 cents in a dollar, 75 cents. And we were like chasing this, this decline that we just couldn't catch up to. And so simultaneously what happened is a lot of these speculative builders that had these thousands of rooftop brand new 322s, they weren't selling. I mean, they weren't selling anymore. There's no owner occupants moving into these things. And so you're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. What's going on, man? Man, it has been a crazy couple of weeks here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, things are good, though. Things are really good. How's your pneumonia? Man, pneumonia is uh, <laughs> is getting better. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I had uh, a slight pneumonia. That was fun. And uh, I sold my 24-unit apartment complex, so Yay. that was a big deal. And I have 45 days or 40 days now to find something to put it in. So 1031, if you guys have a deal, send it to Brandon. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons today I was really excited to bring on our guest today because I've been kind of actively looking for a mobile home park, as you guys probably know. And this guy is one of the smartest mobile home park investors in the country. And he's a guy that I look up to a lot. So uh, you'll hear more from Kevin later. But before we get to all of that, uh, let's hear today's cool I'm great, by the way. Tip. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Quick Josh. Tip. Josh, what? how are you doing? Oh, hey, what's up, man? Hey, man, how, are, how have you been? How's oh, your pneumonia? Oh, I'm, I'm spectacular. Okay, tell me, tell me what's been new in your life. Here, sit down on the couch. Let's talk a little oh, bit. Oh, man. Let's make Josh well, feel good. You know, I, yeah, this, this is all about me. I, I got to take my, I, I took my girls to see Frozen, the, the pre-Broadway preview oh. of Frozen, which was, uh, was good, man. I, you know. Hey, let it go. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. Let it, let it go. I, I, I like it. I, Just don't I hold it back. Sing. Don't hold yeah. it back anymore. Yeah, I tried. I tried. Yeah, let it go. Um, Turn yeah, away we, and we just, slam the door. Can you shut up? Here I stand. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's the worst. This guy is so. <laughs> Did you sing yeah. along though when let it, like everyone sings along to let it go, right? No, no. Everyone no, sings no, along. No, but song. it was. They did some really cool stuff on the show. The, the, this thing's going to be awesome on Broadway. It's going to be really great. So nice. that was that was good. And then this weekend we actually did Bigger Pockets, and I personally, oh, yeah. we uh, partook at the uh, Children's Hospital of Colorado 40th anniversary gala fundraiser. We were there to help raise money for Children's Hospital, which is one of my favorite causes, yep. uh, very meaningful to me. And uh, we we raised, you know, we through the company and and me personally had given a lot of money. So really important to me. They did a great job at the, at the gala. And, uh, I encourage anyone who's looking for a place to partake with, well, part with part their, with their the, money, part with their money, give it to children's hospital. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. That's I went to the, uh, I survived real estate fundraiser at the same time you were doing that fundraiser pretty yeah. much. Anyway, down in, I went to the one with, uh, the Norris group down in Southern California, um, yeah. with, uh, Amanda Hunt. Yeah. That one was supporting St. Jude's and make a wish. Like, yeah, like they should play this video beforehand about like kids with cancer. I, I just bawled. Like I was like sitting there in this room with all these investors. Like I was just crying because I'm yeah. like, now that I'm a parent, right? It's like, it's oh, so yeah. different. Like I tear up right now just thinking about it. Like parents who have to deal with that. Like that's so sad. Anyway, yeah, give your money to stuff that matters. I mean, that's why we're in real estate is to why, right? generate that's, matter. Yeah, generate money why. so we can help others. So help yeah. others. Awesome. All right. Quick tip. Anyway, quick tip. <laughs> all right. Quick 
Uh, now we're on such a sad note. All right, quick tip today is this. If you're listening to this, at least like when this episode comes out, there are about 90 days left in the year of 2017, which means if you've got some end of the year goals, you've got about three months. You know how long it takes to find a property and then put it through the financing you know, a couple months maybe, right? You can do it a little bit faster than that, but it might take a little bit of time. So it's time to double down on your goals and really work hard to achieve them. So that's the quick tip is uh, figure out what you're gonna get done by the end of the year and then set some really ambitious and specific plans of what you're gonna do each week. And if you wanna know more about that, we are doing a live webinar on that exact topic this coming week. Go to biggerpockets.com slash webinar. And if you're listening to this in the future and you wanna watch a replay of that, if you're a pro member, go to the Bigger Pockets Pro Replay Room, biggerpockets.com slash pro replay. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have a great show ahead for you. This is show 246 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. You can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 246. And hey guys, really, really quickly, we love all the ratings and reviews that you guys have been giving us, but we want more. We do. We really do. We do. We're (laughs) greedy. So, so jump on iTunes if you haven't already, you know, maybe you listen to this on, on YouTube. Maybe you listen to it some, somewhere else. iTunes tends to be the the largest audience of listeners. So jump on your iTunes and what is it? The, uh, uh, podcast Podcast app. app. Yeah, and drop us a rating and review. Would really uh, very much appreciate it on the Bigger Pockets podcast. With that, let's get into today's show. Today's guest, Kevin Bupp, is a real estate investor. Th- this guy's really cool. He he starts as I don't know. He, I, I think a self-described kind of failure in high school, and ended up going to community college, and from there, really just kind of fell into real estate. That was 19 years ago. It was, fantastic story over the years. I mean, the guy's done multifamily, single family. Hundreds of single family, hundreds of multifamily units. Absolutely. And And, uh, uh, mobile home parks. Now mobile home parks. And so we talk a lot about that. And that is, uh, that's really one of the foci of of today's show was was the mobile home park. Yeah, you like that? You like that? Well, I mean, First, first we start with like the economy collapsing, right? Like how to Just prevent to, against that again. Yeah. 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 Like the market, you know, is a little toppy right now. And he, um, toppy. wow, you in the words today. Can I just say something without <laughs> disruption? Thank you. So, you know, he had suffered some, some serious pain in 08 when, when the market was, was challenging and, and challenging. Uh, That's like a four syllable oh, word. Crying out loud. <laughs> okay. Three syllables. <laughs> I, I'm literally being trolled by my own co-host. This is great. <laughs> so, um, you lost we, it. we, we dive in on that and, and really specifically about mobile home parks and the, the difference between that and trailer parks. Cause a lot of people are going to hear me say mobile home parks. They're like, Oh, I'm going to tune out, but we're not talking trailer parks. We're actually talking about an asset class that is not just, you know, meth heads and, yeah. and, you know, drug addicts and things. And it's, this applies, like the stuff he talks about today, just take out the word mobile home park every time he says it and put in like apartment or what, you know, a lot of the stuff you can apply it to other, yeah. The direct mail conversation, unbelievable. You guys listen to that. Good. Yeah. How he finds deals. So good. At the end of the, towards the end of the podcast, he talks about that. Anyway. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. 
That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means. Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Let's bring Kevin in. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you here. Josh and Brandon, looking forward to it, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this should be a ton of fun. So, Kevin, I listened to your Mobile Home Park podcast, Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. Am I getting that title right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a... Yes. I definitely, after listening to dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes of that, I'm like, I got to get this guy on the show. And, uh, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. So I'm super excited about today's episode because this is like... My it's a interest. Park. It's a we're talking about mobile home park, right? Or manufacturing trailer, trailer, trailer park. <laughs> hey, hey, mobile home park. Hey, we're a little bit more eloquent in the trailer parks well, out there. Yes. <laughs> what's what's the difference? There, there's there's classifications. Trailer parks are basically weekly rentals with transient people in them that are just like literally rundown shacks. And then there's mobile home parks, which are kind of like the middle of the uh, the level. And then there's manufactured housing communities. So manufactured uh, housing communities ooh. would be. So there's parks. We're buying one right now. And then there's communities. Right that literally has two car garages. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, like you, if we had to, we'd probably live in one. I'm not saying that either of us would, but yeah. we'd be okay with it. You know, it's actually a really nice community with like flags outside of the doors and nice cars and things nice. like that. So I'm, I'm definitely not disparaging. <laughs> I just, I just wanted, before I'm we get started, man. I see that you got some chutzpah, man. But like the whole, like the whole thing is, We've got a show of people who are like mobile home park, trailer parks. What do I give a damn about a trailer park, right? And so let's just create that context right up front, right? This is about investing in not just like the bottom of the barrel where you're dealing with addicts and all sorts of, you know, difficult tenants. This is, we're, we're talking about communities, mobile home park, a high, higher end and the very highest end of the mobile home. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, it's kind of like any other any, any other real estate asset class. I mean, apartment buildings, right? I mean, there are drug-ridden 
oh yeah, you know, run down places that you even if you were packing heat and you were like three fifty and like bulked up, you still wouldn't go to at night, right? Brandon and then just there's like really high end eight plus. <laughs> yeah, so Brandon Brandon knows firsthand. So kind of same thing, right? I mean, or you can buy those decent places that are in really nice communities, but that, that are repositioned opportunities to where you can take a D class and turn it into a C plus or a B minus. That's kind of what we do. I mean, that, that that is our trade. That's the type of park that we typically invest in. We buy in a great market with uh, great schools, great demand for affordable housing, but maybe the previous owner hasn't done a great job. They've let some of those transient people and the people that we know there's good people out there waiting. Oh, we just got to get rid of the bad. And yeah. um, sometimes it's harder than others, but that's kind of our business. But our communities are full. I mean, we, we require that they have jobs. You know, they got to approve income. And so we've got good, hardworking folks that like their kids to go to good schools and uh, like to pay their bills on time. I mean, that's what we look for. Yeah. That's cool. Well, let, let's let's get into that in, in a minute. I, 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 w- I want to kind of take it from the beginning because that's what we usually do. So sure. how did you get going in this world? So, you know, you, you do mobile home parks and, and other stuff, but how did you get started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it goes back to really high school. I'm 38 today, and uh, I got, I got today's kind of your birthday, or like now you're 38. No, 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 no. no. Okay. I'm 38 this year. <laughs> okay. I'm 38. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was gonna sing you a song, happy, but whatever. Happy, happy, happy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I know everyone's got this story, but I really was a horrible high school student. I mean, I barely graduated high school and just didn't really have direction. I just wanted to have fun. And so I didn't go away to school. I went to a community college because I didn't want to waste my parents' money. And I uh, got a job bartending and just was having fun, not really with no direction in life whatsoever. And I got lucky at the age of 19 where I was introduced to a guy. He was actually dating my girlfriend's mom. He was like 20 years older than me. And long story short, we just struck up a good friendship and I found out he was a real estate investor uh, in, in Pennsylvania where I was from. And I'm pretty sure that he saw like a misdirected child in me to, and, and I saw it in him, this older guy that had been successful and had created success for himself. And so without me even knowing it, he kind of started me, started taking me underneath this wing. He invited me to a three-day boot camp. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ron Legrand. I think he's still out there teaching in this world. Um, he teaches basically, you know, fixing and flipping and wholesaling homes. And I got taken to a boot camp when I was 19 down in Philadelphia, three-day boot camp. How to make money fixing and flipping homes. And uh, that was the start of it. I literally went to that seminar, didn't know a thing about real estate, never read a book. I, I mean, I didn't even know what it really meant for him to own properties and actually cash flow from them. And I went to this boot camp and just met some other people that I didn't think were any smarter than I was and said, if they can do it, I can do it. I don't know what that means yet, but I can do this. and I'm going to put some time and effort into it. And uh, basically with his, uh, his mentee for, for a year, I mean, I, I followed him around. His name was Dave. I followed him around. I essentially did anything he wanted me to do for him. Met with contractors, helped him with paperwork. I did that in between my classes and attending bar at nighttime and did it for about a year before I went out and bought my first property. So that, that was really how it started. I bought a really rundown row home in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It was scary. It was that type of property that you should pack heat. I shouldn't have bought it. I wish you would have directed me away from it. I always give him crap about that. I say, why'd you let me buy that property? I mean, I made money, but it was scary. And um, it was a bad part of town, still a bad part of town. And uh, that was the start of it. So I, I continued buying from that point on. I uh, Within a year, I quit bartending, quit going to school to get my AA, but didn't, didn't finish out school and figured I would um, put all my effort into real estate. And so this is all I've done uh, since that, that point in time in my life is invest in real estate full time. I've owned other businesses, but real estate's always been my core business and I've owned uh, hundreds of single family homes, uh, hundreds of apartment doors. And you know, for the past five years, our sole focus has been primarily uh, mobile home parks. So 
Wow. So that's the long and short of that's a condensed version. 19 years. Yeah. Nine, long time. Long time. There was a period of time after 2008. I got I got hammered in 2008. So it was a challenging time for me. I took about three years off and I started a few other businesses that were not related whatsoever to real estate. I just I needed some breathing room and I wanted to do something a little different and just not necessarily try to forget about real estate, but I got hammered pretty hard. So those three years, I did not invest in any real estate actively, but did jump back into it right around 2011. So, and I've been doing it ever since. Nice. All right. So yeah, that that's awesome. Crazy. Lots of, lots, lots of stuff there. Lots to talk about. I, w- I, w- I want to talk about 08 again. We do it every 10, 20 shows. We kind of dive in on what happened then. I want to do it because every conversation I have with smart people today is markets crazy, markets hard, yeah. hot, really hard to find a deal. Things are overpriced. Brandon, I know you were just at an event this weekend where some top economist was like, yeah. you know, we're in a really precarious time. You know, yeah. things are things are, we're on the precipice. You know, I hear a yeah. lot of that from really yeah. smart people. I feel it. And I feel other people who are very intelligent feeling it. And so what I'd love to hear from you is A, what exactly went wrong for you? in a way. And then to follow up, um, given the sentiment that I'm hearing and seeing, how can somebody who's concerned that we might be, you know, at the end of the cycle and at the beginning of, of the a downward one, can people kind yeah. of protect themselves? Yeah. And I'll, I'll start by saying like, every market's different, right? I mean, we all, yeah, sure. we all hear that saying, you know, real estate's local. So, right. You're, you're in Denver, uh, brand, I forget you're out, uh, out in Seattle somewhere, right? Yeah. Yep. Washington Seattle. state. Yep. And I'm in Florida. So all three of us are kind of in very cyclical markets, right? I mean, all, all three of us are in markets that go up pretty crazily, but also yeah. experienced a, a lot of that crash in uh, 2007, 2008. But, you know, what happened you know, back then, I'm not going to say that if I go back again, I would have done anything much differently. I mean, knowing what I know today, I, I wouldn't have bought single family homes. I think that was one of the biggest downfalls for me. And there's nothing against single family homes. It's just, it was what I was taught initially. And so I was really good at it. And we had a pretty big system in place. And I had some partners that owned hundreds more properties than I even did. And I, you know, we collectively worked together. And so we had a big machine. It's kind of like steering a cruise ship, right? Like changing course, it takes time. You got to pre-plan it. And it's just we're like, well, things are going fine. We're going straight ahead. Let's just keep doing it. So single family homes, I would say that just from a 10,000 foot view, it was a very inefficient business model for us just from the managerial standpoint. And we knew it. Uh, we just didn't make the change fast enough, but that wasn't really what, what what killed us. And we were very particular about buying at highly discounted discounted rates. I mean, we had that model. We would never pay more than 65 cents in a dollar. So we had a, a ton of equity on paper in our properties. And we really thought we were cash flow investors with our single family homes, we did. We were positive cash flow, but it wasn't sufficient enough to where any type of correction we would be able to survive if we saw a uh, mass decline in the either the rental rates or even the values or a combination of the two, which is what happened in our portfolio. And so what really happened down here was, I guess, probably a little bit unique. Not that it didn't happen in other areas. Uh, Arizona is probably another state in Nevada where this similar scenario took place. But And at the same time that I own a lot of single family homes, I own apartment units as well. Uh, but the single families were really the thing, I think. They were like the nail in the coffin. There was a lot of spec builders down here, down in southwest Florida. I'm talking like building hundreds and thousands of rooftops, brand new homes for a population that wasn't really even coming. I mean, this is back in the day when a new home bill would be flipped three or four times before it ended up in the last person's hands, right? Before it was even completed. I mean, I don't think things are as crazy today as they were back then, but that's what was happening. So what really happened to us that number one, value started dropping really fast here. You know, the market started tightening up a little bit. 
And we, we saw that happen. We saw the signs and we started trying to sell. We were starting to discount. We tried to sell for 85 cents in a dollar, 80 cents in a dollar, 75 cents. And we were like chasing this, this decline that we just couldn't catch up to. And so simultaneously what happened is a lot of these speculative builders that had these thousands of rooftops, brand new 322s, they weren't selling. I mean, they weren't selling anymore. There was no owner occupants moving into these things. And so a lot of them had construction loans. Most of them had construction loans. And they, so they started renting out these brand new homes because no one knew how long this correction was going to take. No one knew how dramatic this downturn was going to be. And so we went through a period of time, uh, you know, eight to 12 months where we were getting poached. I mean, these brand new home builders were literally renting out their units for sometimes less than what we were renting out, like a home that was 30 years old, right? Three one, like you can move into a brand new three, two, two for the same price, maybe even less. And um, we had a mass exodus in our occupancy in a short period of time. And that that combined with literally our equity went kaput. There are some areas where we saw we lost more than 50 percent of the uh, the value. And then rental rates had to drop a little bit as well in order for anyone to survive. You know, landlords started trying to compete against these spec builders that were renting out these new homes. It was just an ugly, ugly cycle. And it got to the point where instead of having cash flow each month and having checks come in, we were writing checks to simply make up the difference of the debt service that we had. And it really became a strategic decision on our part. We, we knew that we, that literally, that there's no way that we could survive for years that way. In fact, we'd be out of money very, very quickly, probably yeah. in less than a year, if uh, we continued down that road. Number one, they, they, some of them were upside, a lot of them were upside down, even though we were at 65% when we bought them, they're yeah. upside down and they're negative cash flow. So it's like, what do you do, right? So, yeah. so and, and and I know I, we're, we're going to get to the second part of the question, but I mean, that's that's scary. If you're paying 65 cents on the dollar, I mean, it's hard to imagine that, that, you, can't you, cash can, flow. that you can't cash flow. Uh, I mean, that kind of thing should send shivers down the spine of, of any real estate investor. And so let's you go know, to the taxes second. Taxes and insurance down here play a big part of that as well. I mean, taxes and insurance in Florida are significant. This this is uh, shortly after, 2004 was a bad hurricane year for us. Hurricane Charlie, we, I think it was Charlie Ivan and was Katrina that year? I can't remember, but Charlie hit us really hard down here. In, in that area, we own a lot of properties. And so insurance is just incredibly expensive, especially in these older structures that are, you know, within 10 miles of a coastal area, which a lot of them are. And so insurance is expensive and taxes are expensive on top of it. So, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it's a challenge to cash flow in some of these markets down here. And, yeah. and so what we looked at, we looked back said, you know, we were really buying for appreciation on our balance sheet. We look phenomenal. And we were cash flowing, but we weren't really cash flow investors, not in the sense that I am today. You right. know, cash flow is number one priority today. So, so for somebody who's not maybe in a better market, maybe in a safer market, you know, less risky, less risk prone to to get natural disasters, things like that. How does irrelevant actually? You know, like how does somebody protect against? a market decline like that. Is there any way to do that? Or is it just, you know, make sure you're not stretched too thin? That's it. Make sure you're not stretched too thin. I mean, now when we buy mobile home parks and uh, we look at things a little differently through a much more conservative, and I thought I was conservative back then, which is the funny thing, but we always run our properties nowadays. Like we always do conservative projections, but we also, none of us know what like capital market, what's going to happen to the capital markets in the next couple of years as far as interest rates are concerned or what type of LTVs will be available in loans even, you know, like I see multifamily properties, like they're getting like three years interest only and, you know, 30 plus year amortizations. I mean, it's just crazy, 85% loan to values. And we don't know if that's going to be there. And so whenever we buy a property nowadays, we run it through like our own, it's like our own proprietary stress test. And so it's essentially a pro forma that has different scenarios involved, meaning like, 
like if it's got a five-year balloon on that property, what happens if year five, we go to get refinanced and it's 8% rates or 9% rates, or, you know, we can only, we can't get any cash out at that point in time. It's just going to be a rate and term refi, meaning we can't get the capital back to our investors and we just got to continue holding on to this property. Like what happens then? And so we always run, I think that to answer your question, be incredibly conservative, but also think about worst case scenario and run your property through that model of what the worst case scenario is. Rents don't always go up like they are now. Like they don't always go up for seven, eight, nine, ten years forever. It's not an eternity thing. There's markets that can see a decline in, in rents. And uh, I think we're probably going to, there's going to be some markets that get overbuilt with apartments where there's going to be start concessions being given by other apartment complexes and hey, free TV over here, free one month rent. You know what I mean? Like that happens and, and it's part of the cycle. So yeah. just be incredibly conservative. Don't always think that the road goes up. You yeah, know, sometimes the road goes stagnant or goes downhill. Yeah, that's so true. And I, yeah. I like that idea, the stress test. I think, you know, no matter what kind of investment you're in, if you're in mobile home parks or in your whatever, you know, single families, whatever, stress test your deals. Uh, I'm doing that when I, when I flip a house right now, which I don't flip very often, but like when I do, I'm looking at what happens if the market drops between now and then 20%. Like, can I at least get out? Mm -hmm. You know, that's also why most yes. deals that I do, in fact, every deal I do is a rehab of some kind, a repositioning of some kind. So whether it's small or large, everything I want to build equity immediately. Now, granted, I could maybe just find a little bit better deals, but they're so hard to find right now. So what I'm looking for is anything that is, you know, a value add opportunity. So that way, if the market does collapse yeah. 20%, 30%, we're, like hopefully then I'll at least be broke even and hopefully the cash flow is still going to be there. So again, stress test, I think that's a really, really good tip. So let's talk about then mm -hmm. uh, switching over to like, how did you make that transition to mobile home parks? I mean, we're going to do a segment here in a little bit. I got like the section written down of common objections because everyone's got objections to mobile home parks. I want to know you for sure. Like, how sure. did you go, you know, I think we'll do a, a park. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to uh, give you a little bit more of the background story. I mean, so yeah. at the same time we owned single family homes, we also had I like to say accidentally acquired a few hundred units of apartment doors. Okay. And I say accidentally because it wasn't really part of our business model. I just, you know, a 50 unit would get sent to us. We'd look at it. We didn't even know how to properly analyze that apartment, that, that apartment property. But that part of our portfolio actually ended up being okay. But we had to sell at the bottom of the market, most of them. And we, we didn't sell at the right time, but that's because we were so strapped for cash. So anyway, I looked back at my business after all this had happened and you know, stepped back and said, hey, what really, what really went wrong and what should I have changed? And the one thing I identified was that, to, at least to me, and there's not, again, I'm not not harping on single family homes because they can make great investments for some people, just not me. I felt like my business, the multifamily side of it, our apartment buildings didn't take as big of a hit and they just kind of, they supported themselves. You know, we did buy them, write it. We didn't know really what we were doing in that space. I mean, we know how to manage them, but we weren't buying or analyzing them as we should have. But we just got lucky, I think, in most most cases. They were just much more efficient, much more scalable. I mean, it literally took the same amount of time to buy 500 apartment doors as it did to buy 120 single-family homes. Actually, probably took more time to buy those single-family homes. And so looking forward, I said, you know – I've got to do multifamily. I mean, like I'm not getting back into the single family home. Now I'm married. Now I've got kids. I'm going to have kids and I, like my life's different. I don't have all this time to rebuild all these single family homes because it takes forever to get a big portfolio going. And so um, I knew I was going to get back in the apartment space uh, or at least multifamily. But so I was out there talking. This is like 2010, 2011. I was talking to every single person that I could get in front of that was actively an investor in the multifamily space and a like a you know, big investor that owned at least a few hundred units because the climate had changed, right? The landscape changed from 2006, 2007 era to 2011, right? Still a lot of distress in the market. Things were different. Real estate, a lot of people were still scared of it. And so um, 
I was, I was uh, talking to as many people as I could, and I got introduced to a gentleman that had been in the manufactured housing space uh, for 30 years from the financing side at first, but then also retired and then started buying communities himself because uh, he had been involved in it for so long and had lunch with him and literally left that lunch after about an hour, hour and a half or so, basically telling myself, I'm going to give it a year. I'm going to focus on mobile home parks. And he piqued my interest with a lot of different things. I'm going to give this a year like I was going to for, for multifamily to buy a community and see how it went. And so that's what I did. I literally, he just piqued my interest with enough facts uh, within this industry that I thought were unique enough. And I thought that there was a lot of opportunity there that I got excited. And there I went for a year. It took me about a year and a half to buy the first one, but that was it, man. Just at lunch with someone that was an operator that, you know, made it sound like it was a better space to be in than the apartment space. And uh, here we are today. So let's talk hey, about that. I mean, re- re- really quick before we go there, you mentioned we a couple of times. Who, who is we? It's not a, a super yeah, so, partner. Yeah, you know, our company today is a little different than it was when I first bought my first couple of mobile home parks. The first couple of parks I purchased, I purchased with a uh, an older partner that I had owned a lot of other property with in the past. And we use a lot of our own money. We did have some private investors come in, but I mean, majority of it's our own money. And uh, today our, our business structure is a little different. We're a, uh, we've got a full-fledged syndication that we have together, a fund that we raise capital from passive investors. And so... Today, there's three principals in our group. It's myself and two other individuals that make up the principals of our company. And that does not include the guy that I own, you know, a couple of the original mobile home parks. So when I say we, I mean, Sunrise Capital Investors is our company and there's three principals in our organization. Got it. Perfect. All right. So what are those benefits? What did that guy tell you about mobile home parks that piqued your interest? And what can you tell our audience? What are the benefits to them? So there's a lot of them. So I'll try to keep it, I'll try to keep it somewhat short, but, uh, you know, one of the big ones that I thought was interesting is, uh, he, he kind of asked what my complaints were about, you know, the residential housing space, you know, like w- w- what were the complaints that if I could change, uh, I would. And one of them is like turnover, right? I mean, in an apartment space or single family rentals, you have turnover. And a lot of times it's depending on the market. I mean, for the most part it could be every 12 months, right? I mean, if not sooner than that. And so, you know, when he started talking about manufactured housing and how they own their home, for the most part, you know, we do own a lot of the trailers. It's just, that's not really our business model, but that, that comes with the uh, the territory. But in any event, majority of our homes in our parks, the people own, the residents own their own home and they just rent a lot. And so he went on to explain that, it's pretty expensive to move these homes. Uh, once they get set in place, very rarely do they ever leave. And so, and, and if they did leave, there's really not many other places they can go that's any cheaper. So there wouldn't really be a strategic advantage for the home to ever leave that park. And so the turnover is incredibly low, being that they don't get moved out often, more so they get sold. So if a resident wants to move, they have to sell their trailer, continue paying lot rent while it's for sale. And then the new person moves in and they continue paying lot rent. So that was one of the big ones that I liked, just low, low turnover. Um, another one would be the the maintenance aspect of it. You know, with an apartment or a single family home rental, you've got to maintain the plumbing, the AC, the roofs, all that stuff. If they own their own home. All we're maintaining in a mobile home park is the infrastructure, which is the water and the sewer lines and the the roads in the common areas. And, and if their AC breaks, if their roof starts leaking, if their skirting gets broken, uh, whatever it might happen, they're replacing that and they're repairing it. So they're not calling us in the middle of the night and they're not bothering us with those types of things that you know have a lot of variables involved with them. And uh, for us, it's just the infrastructure, which is fairly easy to, to handle. Another big one is uh, the returns. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. I want to start by saying this. You can make great returns in any type of real estate if you buy it right. Okay. So I'll start by saying that. But with that being said, every market that we own mobile home parks in, if you compared apples to apples, if you could, took the same size apartment complex, same demographic, I would pretty much guarantee that you're going to find... Uh, 
at least a 2% yield premium that you're going to get as far as returns are concerned on that mobile home park than on that apartment building. So the returns are significantly higher. You know, we've got pretty high expectations. And on that, we don't have a property to date in our portfolio that doesn't meet or exceed 20% annual cash on cash returns. And that's real levered debt. That's not like 5% down. That's like legitimate 25, 35, 25 to 30% down type debt. And so the returns are just awesome. Um, again, got to buy it right. We look at a lot of stuff. Brandon, just like I know you're looking at this space. Yeah. Look at a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, but there's still good, a lot of opportunity out there. And I think where the opportunity comes from, this is one of the last big reasons that he gave me is that it's an, there's an aging population of the original owners and developers in the space. It's not that old of an industry. When you really look back at it, a majority of the, 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 the parks that are out there today were built you know, between the 60s and the 80s, with the majority of them being in the 70s. And so it's not really an old industry at all. But a lot of those original developers are still in the space, meaning like they're like in their 70s and 80s and sometimes 90s now. And they still own these things. And so they're aging out of the assets. And they also – it wasn't all that sexy of an asset class 15, 20 years ago. And so they were kind of like the redhead stepchild in the real estate space. Now that's changed. A lot of them haven't even realized that's changed. A lot of them haven't really run it like a business. They haven't consistently kept rents up to marketplace. They haven't infilled empty spaces. They just haven't run it like a business. And so there's been a lot of opportunities. In fact, I'd say, I don't know, 80% of the parks that we own today, I'd say the average age of the seller was 65 plus years of age. And they just, and most of them had a tremendous amount of upside in rents and just operational efficiencies in general. And so I think there's still a lot of that out there, lots of mom and pop owners. And that represents a great opportunity for people like us that operate like a business. We're professional operators and we're looking to get in and, and maximize the revenue and make it run as efficiently as possible. So those are just some of the top ones of why like he piqued my interest and I dug deeper to see if it was real, to see if there was really an opportunity there. So, right. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I want to, you know, now we talked about all the good things. I want to talk about some of the bad things, but one of the things I've noticed as I'm analyzing deals, I mean, I've made it clear, I think on this podcast before that, you know, I'm, I really love the idea of buying a mobile home park. Now I, the reason I'm looking at it isn't so much, I mean, like, yes, it's all those reasons, but when people ask me, well, mobile home parks is better than everything else. I say, well, not necessarily. Uh, but for me, it was about picking one thing and going with it. You know, I knew I wanted to get something bigger. I knew that there's a lot of competition, but, and this is advice for everybody out there, whether you care about mobile homes or not. Like I could have just chosen, I wanted to buy a certain size multi, uh, multifamily apartment, right? I could have decided I mm -hmm. want to do single family flipping. It doesn't really matter. I can find a millionaire in every single category of real estate in every single location yep. in the country, right? Like there's, they're everywhere. But you'll never do anything if you don't pick something. So if for people who ask me all the time, why mobile home parks? I picked it. It kind of sounds like you did too. Like it's, it sounds yeah. fun. It sounds good. It'll work. Pick it. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those guys. I mean, I've got to have like, I've got to have focus. Like yeah. I know what my downfalls are and it's me trying to spread myself too thin, chasing other shiny types of objects, which could be other real estate types, right? You, there's like a million and one ways, if not more to make money in real estate. You just pick one. Yep. And give it some time. Like don't yeah. don't even like don't give it a month or two. Give it a year at least, and and just learn every can everything you can about it. Dive in deep and just commit to you know making it work. Because again, there's a million ways to make money. Just pick one and focus on it. Not that you can't expand later on, but until you actually become incredibly successful and in the you know the top of your market, whatever niche you choose. Yep. Don't worry about anything else. Yeah, I, I love that advice. I had a, I had a conversation yeah. with a guy last week uh, who was he, like his model is to buy like properties in like Los Angeles and other like rent controlled areas that have horrible returns yet he's making a killing off of it. And I, as I talked to him, I realized like, I'm going to actually try to get him on the show here. Cause like his model was fascinating and it, it was all on predicated on buying rent controlled, low, 
uh, like buying a two or three cap property in a rent controlled area, but that was his strategy and he knew how to work just that strategy just right so that when people moved out, he could bump the rent up and it was, anyway, fascinating. Uh, but the point was like, he picked a, a, a niche that he just wanted to become the best at. Now he's the best at that one little niche. It. Yep. And so, that's yeah. It. So those people listening right now who have been listening to the show for four years now and saying, I, I, I just want, I, I, you know, every week you're like, oh, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. That sounds fun. Just pick something and do yeah, it. So that's it. Yeah. All right, so let's it talk about easy. It, it is easy to kind of get distracted each yeah. week or each episode because we've got different topics and different yeah. people with really cool stories. You guys are yeah. the blame for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I take I take some blame. Mostly, blame it on Brandon. But um, I, 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 I had I had I had one more that I tend to hear a lot on the mobile home parks, which is they're one of the more recession-proof asset classes in the real estate space. Would you, would you agree with that or disagree? Yeah, I mean, th yes. I know, then there was a study done too, uh, and it, I, I think it went between 2007 and 2012. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't find that study, and I don't know who wrote it, who it was done by, but they had the lowest default rate in, in the lending space as far as loans are concerned between that time period, 2007, 2012, mobile home parks did. So that's one fact. But I mean, really, if you just think about it from a logical standpoint, you know, when, when people go through hard times, whether they're like a dual income household and one person lose a job or they get demoted and their income goes down, they, they tend to kind of move down the ranks. Right. And so here's how I look at it. And I know that this isn't necessarily 100 uh, percent exactly how it will work, but just Think, you know, follow me here for a minute. You got an A-class apartment building. That's all they're building nowadays, right? That's all they're building. These really high-end apartment complexes. Yep. They can't afford those. They move down to a B-plus or a B-grade apartment complex. Can't afford that because, you know, whatever. The kid wants to go to a real expensive college, and they're also not making as much money. So now they got to move to a C-grade apartment complex. After a C-grade, you start talking about D-grade, which is a place that we talked about scary. You got to pack heat. It's just not a fun place to live. You don't want to put your family there, right? You're putting them in harm's way. So at that point in time – your next most affordable option is a manufactured housing community. And it's not necessarily that it's lower quality or, you know, less desirable, but it definitely is like you move down the ranks, mobile home parks across the country, like the average lot rent for a mobile home park is somewhere in the range of like $325 a month. And that's taken some really high markets and some also really low markets right in the middle, about $325 a month. And there is nowhere in this country that you can live in a safe environment and house your entire family for $325 a month. And if you can't afford to live there, then you're literally underneath the bridge or on your buddy's couch, right? I mean, like there's there's no other options at that point in time. And so I really believe, and, and these aren't low-end communities. These aren't like rough places that are scary. They're in places that have good school districts. They have a better sense of community than most apartment complexes do. Get your own yard. And and so I really think that it's it's becoming – a more well-known choice for people that are renters. Like they're, they're it's, it's, it's starting to get out the stereotypical image of like trailer trash and all that. It's starting to go away a little bit in this industry. Yeah. It's, it's making a big shift. And so do I think they're recession resistant or proof? I mean, proof, probably not. I don't think anything is, but resistant. I think so because affordable housing is an incredible high demand today. And if we go through a downturn, it only, the demand only goes up, right? Yeah. Even in good times, like when right now we are not meeting the affordable housing demand in this country and it's just not being built. I mean, it's, it's not coming out of the ground. Everyone's building these really high end, a class type communities. So I really think it is one of the most recession resistant uh, assets you can invest in. And so, uh, and that's why, I mean, it's just, there's no other affordable place you can live and house your family and have a place of your own than a mobile home park. So yeah, makes that's sense. True. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I got an RV this year and, and we've been going around to RV parks and, and getting to ex experience 
RV parks, which I know a lot of, I know a couple of mobile home guys who are also doing RV parks mm-hmm. and, and it's, you know, very, very similar model, except one is more like a vacation rental, whereas the yes. other one is, is long-term and it's a, it's a cool model. And, and like you said, the, the, the required maintenance on these things is, is, is really relatively low and, and easy. So yeah, I love it. It's great. That's great. Yeah, it's cool. yeah, I mean the RV park space. That we don't not in that business. We do have some RV spots in a few of our parks, but that is a different business model. A lot more management intensive because you have a yeah. lot of people coming and going. But yeah, that's a great demographic. I mean, majority of the people that are traveling in RVs. I mean, I think that's an expensive hobby to have. Yeah. And so the stability of of that type of business when you're catering to that clientele. It's it's great. I mean, yeah. you know, most mo, you're probably one of the younger people I know that I don't know how old you are, but you look a little. <laughs> you're definitely probably below forty. He's pushing Maybe, seventy. I don't know. Seven, hey, 70. look at the, I like this guy. My favorite guest. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm below forty. You, yeah, I'm assuming when you go to these RV parks, you're, most of your neighbors are probably sixty plus in age, they right? They are, but they're great. Oh my <laughs> no, god, I, they're, they're awesome. nothing against it. I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah. A, they're in fixed incomes. They work their entire lives. They've made good money. They get pensions. They've got investments. Yeah, yep. it's a great, great class to uh, to serve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and to go back to what we said earlier, I bet you we could find lots of examples of RV park owners who are millionaires because of that niche. Oh yeah. they, they oh, picked absolutely. that niche and they rocked it. Like again, it just, like every single niche, you can find people that are multimillionaires from it. Absolutely. So right. again, and in just fact, now the tiny the tiny house movement's actually yeah. starting to. Oh, yeah. Make its its way into the RV parks. And uh, we haven't done it yet. We've seen Only those. because tiny houses are so damn expensive. Like the cost <laughs> per square foot to build, like it's at least where we own parks, it's not a logical uh, housing option. Maybe in like a, a trendy area like in Austin or uh, yeah. Yeah, Asheville, North Carolina or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you well, know, they one in Denver built, now. I just saw one. They just built one yep. like, you know, eighth of a mile from our office, uh, which is fascinating. You know, It'd be interesting to see how the economics of the tiny tiny houses over time creating tiny house communities would relate to, to that of a, a mobile home park. But uh, yeah, they built one. They needed affordable housing. And so they built a tiny house park for homeless folks in, in oh, okay. the city of Denver. And it's great. It's close. It's clean. It looks great. I mean, the whole thing is is wonderful, and and it's they're doing this experiment right now. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully it catches on, and and we can deal with some of that lower income housing crisis that we're having here in the country. Yeah. Go. No, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch over to the objections. I mean, I, I want to actually uh, in this little segment of the show, we're just going to fire a bunch of objections at you. The things you've I'm sure heard Absolutely. when people say. You know, when you say you do mobile home parks, they're like, "Oh, isn't it whatever?" So we're going to uh, fire those at you. So you got to say. All right. So first one, I don't want to deal with low income tenants. Yeah. Then don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's your, that's your choice of what kind of mobile home park you want to invest in. Okay. As is with any, you know, if you're going to be a single family home investor, that's going to have a rental or an apartment investor, that's going to have rentals and have, you know, annual leases and such. You kind of get to choose what grade of asset you want to buy. And the same thing goes with mobile home parks. Like I said, how, what we buy, I, I would say that we make our money because we solve problems. So we'll buy parks that are in great locations, great school districts, people that, you know, the, the, like the average median household incomes, 40 plus thousand a year, which isn't a lot. But I mean, th- they make money and they have jobs. There might be a bad element in that community, but we know that we can get it out and there's plenty of good people to replace them. So my suggestion would be if you don't want to deal with bad people at all, you can go buy stabilized property, but maybe if you're okay with just dealing with them temporarily, you can do what we do. We buy value add properties in great markets, kick the bad out, bring the good in. If you go buy a park in like the middle of the ghetto, that's got weekly rentals 
and you said you didn't want to deal with bad people, then that's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> don't buy that. Don't buy that type of property. So I think you really have a choice on what type of tenant base you want to deal with. I mean, at the end of the day, all of our residents in our parks are all highly respectable people. And you know, we get the bad apple here and there. It happens anywhere. Yeah. Even if you had a high-end apartment complex oh, yeah. in Manhattan, you got the bad apples, right? So, you know, the goal is just to have strict management processes and procedures in place, do you know, background screening. All of our people have to have jobs. They have to go through background checks. We don't let felons in. We don't let people with, you know, negative rental history. And if they've had an eviction in the past, forget about it. It's your job to filter out the bad. And so it's yeah. very easily doable. And um, yeah, so just what I say is don't buy one that way. Don't you know, want the bad people in there. If only somebody had written a book on the book on managing rental properties, you could probably oh, yeah. apply that. There you go. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Which you can get at biggerpockets.com slash store. <laughs> Or uh, rental book. Or so rental so book. So and so you can so get that one yeah. with book on uh, rental property investing. All right. So yeah. next, next question. One. Next Josh, uh, objection. objection. You want to take it? I object. Okay. Mobile <laughs> homes it. decline I, in value. Ooh, I can't they, do well, this. They do. They do. They do decline in value. Whoa. I mean, they're, they're a depreciating asset just like a vehicle is, right? But that doesn't mean that, you know, there's a couple of different components of the business. There's if you want to have rental trailers and, you know, like typically we get the same amount of rent or we don't get much of a premium for rent. If we have a let's say we have a 1985 three bedroom, two bath, single wide. Uh, I'm going to give you actually a real example of a park in North Carolina. We have it rents for six fifty a month. It's like on a rent to own type program, six fifty a month. That includes lot rent and everything. We've got some brand new homes in that community as well that are three bedroom, two bathroom, literally brand new, never lived in. And for those, we only get, uh, I believe we get seven thirty five a month. That includes you know the lot rent and the payment. So we don't get much of a premium. So if you're going to be in the business and you're going to actually own these things, and you're right. They depreciate in value, but the rental value is still there. Like the rental value is, it's not going anywhere. As long they, they can be maintained just like a normal house can, meaning like they don't necessarily have a, a shelf life. Like they don't completely like become obsolete when they're 30 years old. We've got some trailers in some of our parks that are like back from, I think the oldest one we have is like 1968, but it's been reconfigured. It's got new, like a new roof on it. It's got a pitched roof. It's floor plan had been reconfigured probably 15 years ago. It's all electric upgrade, no gas. I mean, you know, so you can make these things whatever you want them to be. But if we went to sell some of those, yeah, right. And we'd get 1968 trailer, we'd get like probably two grand for it. Right. But it still gets $695 a month in rent in the market that it's in. So yeah. I don't really, that doesn't really affect my business at all as far as them depreciating in value. It's just, it's one of those things. It is what it is. Yeah. So I don't know how else to answer that other than it's not no, just not great. a big, it's not a big deal. <laughs> and your bread and butter is not, your bread and butter isn't owning the homes themselves. I mean, that happens from time to time, but the bread and butter is owning the park and Absolutely. getting the lot rent, not dealing with somebody renting the, the unit itself. We own, I don't know the exact number we own. We own over a hundred of them, the trailers, but it's just because the parks that we purchased, they came with rental trailers. Like the, the previous owner thought it was a good business model to have rental units. He thought he made more money that way, which is not normally the case at all. And so we acquired them, but we always have a priority to sell those off and to turn either the existing renters into just lot renters, meaning they own the home or let them, you know, move out of their, you know, move out and their lease, whatever, and sell it to someone else that again is going to become a long, because we know once they actually buy the home, they're going to be a long-term resident. Like the, the yeah. chances of them leaving after that, is next to none, uh, or they'll sell it to someone else and that person will continue paying lot rent. But you know, when we buy a park that's got rental trailers, we definitely don't pay a premium. We're still using like our old single family model. Like we are buying them at a fraction of what the, what we know we could turn around and sell them for. So we always, we don't care about making too much money on the homes. We have to sell them. And so even if we paid 5,000 for a trailer and it's really worth 10, uh, someone came in, they gave us eight for it. We would take it because we know that person's going to move in there. We're going to, the lifetime value of that resident 
is going to well exceed that $2,000 that we even just lost on that trailer that we sold. So we're not in the business of losing money, but we're not also not in the business of making money from these trailers. So being the fact that they depreciate, it doesn't really make a difference as long as you don't overpay for them in the front end. So that makes sense. Hey, hey really quick before we, we get back to, to the objections, what kind of, what, what is your average vacancy in, in your parks? Yeah, right now I think across the board we're running Percentage. about ninety, yeah, ninety six percent, and that, that would, percent. yeah, yeah, and that was a fewer. I mean, fewer higher, fewer slightly lower. It depends what stage of the turnaround they're in. Because right now we have, we have two parks that are currently in the repositioning stage that probably drop down that average a little bit. And then we've got multiple others that are, you know, stabilized and such. So yeah, but it, it fluctuates somewhere between probably like 93 to 97%, you know, depending on what properties we've just acquired and where we're at with them. There you go. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. All, All right. right. Next one. And this one, I'm going to, uh, I actually met with my CPA, Amanda Hahn, just this past weekend. Uh, and we talked about this mobile home park and she said, from a tax standpoint, this is my biggest problem with them. She said, you can't depreciate the cost of a mobile home park that's owned by tenants because it's not your home. It's all you can depreciate is the improvements to the land. So it eliminates yeah, a right. lot of the depreciation benefits of owning real estate. She said, so yeah. you're not going to get the same tax benefits as owning something else. No, you're right. That is true. I mean, there is an accelerated component to it. So it's 15 years versus what is it? 27 and a half years for yeah. uh, multifamily. Yep. Yeah. So there's an accelerated component, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're depreciating, you know, the infrastructure, the roads and the sewer lines and the water lines and, you know, common areas, any kind of outbuildings or management offices and such. I mean, if you own some of the trailers, you can depreciate the trailers. But I mean, if you don't own the trailers and you're right, you are limited in that capacity. So yeah. it just is what it is. You know, it's one of those things. It is what it is. All right. Right on. Last objection, I guess. It's hard to get loans on a mobile home park. It can be. Yeah, it can be. I would tell you that it's probably one of the asset classes that the banks, uh, uh, as far as their understanding of across the board, either the banker gets it or they don't. And it, it can be frustrating depending on the type of park you're buying. I mean, especially if it's a massive turnaround type play uh, and if the owner hasn't kept good books and records, which is pretty common in the mom and pop space. It can be incredibly challenging to get financing unless you've got a relationship already or you've got a track record. So but the good part of that, so there's a good positive flip side of that, and this is played true in most of the parks that we've purchased. You can a lot of times play that to your advantage depending on the seller and their situation, and uh, we very commonly get owner financing because their books are horrific or they've kept like handwritten ledgers and which are you can't read. And so a lot of times we'll kind of, you know, not coerce them, but, you know, pr persuade them to consider owner financing. Number one ends up being a much more of a benefit for them from a capital gain standpoint, but also a benefit for us because now we can get financing and knowing that if any other buyer came along, they're going to run the same challenge as us if they try to buy it and the bank won't finance it. So once you get to a certain classification, or I guess, uh, quality of a mobile home park or, you know, like I said, manufactured housing communities are like the really nice ones. There's plenty of programs out there. Fannie Mae will lend on them, lots of CMBS lenders, but typically loan amounts two million and above. And they've got to be higher quality park, you know, uh, so they can't necessarily be like parks that have a lot of rental units, parks that maybe have a lot of empty pads in them or are struggling financially or the not good records in place. So there's financing. It's just, if you want to compare it to the apartment space, I feel like banks are like throwing money at apartments yeah. today. Like yeah. you could literally say, well, I just quit Subway the other day and I'm about to buy a 50 <laughs> unit property. And uh, they, they would they would lend someone money on that property with no experience in that space. They would throw money on <laughs> They'd be competing for that business. In the mobile home park space, it's it's slightly different than that. So it is a little more challenge. But I think that where there's a challenge, there's always a benefit for people like us, right? If you're willing to stick your nose to the grindstone and figure it out where others you know give up, then you can make a ton of money. 
And that's one so. thing I love about like, that I kind of learned, I think, from you in, in your podcast was, you know, there are all these objections people have, but that's what makes it an asset class that is really enticing because most yeah. people, like when I talk about it, what do they say? Oh, I would never buy a trailer park. Great. Don't do trailer it. Or for me. Yeah, go, exactly. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I, I like to tell her when it's in the real estate business, right? We're all real estate investors here. You make the most money being a real estate investor when you can master the art of being a problem solver. Yeah, love it. And so all these other problems that these other buyers find, like I can't get financing, can't do this, can't do that. I mean, we literally have a property right now that we're having a challenge in getting financed. It's probably the most challenging properties I've ever had. And I think it's where it's at. It's in South Carolina. The, the Carolinas, for some reason, the bankers are like 20 years behind the times. And like, it's <laughs> old, it's a good old boy network. And I'm not a good old boy. And I'm from the Northeast. And I'm a Yankee in their eyes. You know, so like it's it's been an incredible challenge challenge even it's a great park it's got good financials and so we're bringing more likely bringing a partner that lives in south carolina because they want to they want to lend for someone that's in their state or that's got a local you know local presence there and so we'll just bring someone else and so again we're just we're going to overcome their objections by just bringing someone in locally and, and partnering with someone that we, we trust and know that can help us get this deal done so again just solving the problems right finding solutions yep. to the problems well you that's know great. And you mentioned a minute ago this idea of a lot of owners don't keep good records. I want to speak to that for mm -hmm. a second. What I found now is I've been getting leads on mobile home parks for a few months now, right? And so here's the difference when you're analyzing a multifamily that gets sent to you or a mobile home park that the owner calls you or whatever, right? It's like, I talk to these owners and they're, I'm like, okay, well, how many, how many units do you have? Ah, like 75 or 80, no, maybe 90. <laughs> and you're like, you don't even know how many units you have. Yeah. How can I run that? What's your average rent? Well, I don't know. I think a lot of them are around 400 bucks, but some of them are cheaper than that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like, that's been the biggest problem for me is that it doesn't, you know, I talk about this on the, on the webinars we do every week. You can analyze most deals in like five minutes on the bigger pockets, rental calculator or the flip calculator. That takes like five minutes to run the numbers. Maybe yeah. a, a few more if you got to go and actually dig the data up, like what's the taxes. Mobile home parks take me like an hour, two hours just to find really? the data. I mean, I'm not the okay, fastest, yeah, yeah. but like, like if I'm trying to figure out like what are the taxes on this property and how does that county figure their taxes? Like things yeah, like that are, yeah. or how many units are there or how many, uh, you know, what's the average lot rent? I can't get that information half the time from these owners. They just don't know. I don't know if you run into that, but man, I, I get really time. frustrated with that. All the time. I mean, that's why for the most part, you know, there's a couple of general rule of thumbs I like to use to come up with a really quick and dirty value. And so at least I can tell on the phone when I've got an owner like that, that doesn't have any information or as long as he knows like how many lots are there, how many are rented, what the average rent for, you know, is on the, on the park, how many park owned homes he has, what are their rental rates, mm -hmm. how many are occupied, how many are vacant. And also what the water and sewer situation is like, yeah. is it a well and septic? Is it, is it County or the city who pays for it? If I can get those general uh, general information from them, not even like what the expenses of it, I can at least come up with a rough and dirty that should get me within ten to fifteen percent of what a realistic value is. Whether or not they're running or right or not doesn't matter, but I can I can still come up pretty close. And so if I come up with a rough number that you know tells me that's probably somewhere near a million, and uh, once I get to the part of the conversation where I ask them what they think it's worth, and they say three million. I know we're really, really far apart. And so then I'll dig a little deeper and see if I can get them to tell me how they came up with that number and then see if they'll you know, provide supportive documentation to, to, to prove it. So, but normally I just try, I don't, because a lot of them are just, their expectations are out of this world. Yeah. Most of them just have no idea. You know, they, they just think it's worth what it's worth because that's what it's worth. Yep. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> yep. so, so what is a mobile home park worth then? I mean, you know, is it, is it valued similar to an apartment? Are we yeah, looking at absolutely. some multiple... 
Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the market that it's in. But I'd say on average, we're typically buying parks. Uh, and there's different variables here that, that might change that scenario. But um, somewhere between like a 9 and 10 cap is what we're buying parks on. But, you know, there have been instances where we've overpaid for a park in a big way uh, where we, you know, in your eyes, we would have paid a 5 cap for it based on actuals. But we knew that the operational inefficiencies, we could change them very quickly. And the rents were also way below market. And, you know, that park was in, up in Richmond, Virginia. And that prize is one of our best parks to date. And within four months, we effectively bought it at a 15 cap, you know, after we did fix the minor problems that were there. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, we overpay a lot. I'd say technically we overpay a lot. And it's only, it's only because the books are so bad. And yep. we know the problems that are there aren't really big problems to us. And we can fix them quickly. Yeah, people ask me. Well, I was Go gonna ahead. say, people ask me from time to time, like, what cap do you want to buy at? And I'm like, it's kind of irrelevant because it I is. want a value add, a value add. So like, it doesn't really That's matter. It. it could be a two cap, but if I can fix it up to make it a 20 cap, That's great. It. Or, you know, whatever. I don't even use that. I don't even, yeah. use, I don't even care what the cap rate is. I just yeah. really care. I mean, it really matters on the sale, right? So if you're like doing a pro forma yep. and you want to try to, you know, figure out what your total IRR is going to be after five or 10 years, then you need to apply a cap rate to it to, you know, to try to determine, you know, what that pie in the sky is going to be like five or 10 years yep. from now. Um, but other than that, cap rate really is irrelevant and, and everyone's going to run it differently. And it just doesn't mean the same on the buying side. So on that note, do you, when you look at a property, so I know most apartment uh, complex operators, when you buy an apartment complex, a large one, especially like syndicators, they are looking at that sale at the end as the yeah. primary way to make money, right? They, their, their cash on cash is going to be two, three, four, five percent but they know that they can add 3 million in value over the course of five years. And then yeah. on average, once you take out the sale and all the proceeds, they're going to average 15%, right? Is that how right. you look at mobile right. home parks? Or are you like, we're no. not, we're going to make it valuable whether we sell or not? Yeah. So it goes back to the original conversation of like really investing for cash flow, right? Like real money, real money that's spendable, that's in our pockets each and every month or in our investors' pockets each and every month or every year. And so in our space, in fact, we have a syndication and we, and we, uh, you know, provide, you know, projections and our investor perspectives, but we don't even mention IRR. I mean, it's there, but like, it's definitely not, not our main marketing uh, metric that we use. I mean, we use annualized cash from cash returns because that's real money. That's not projections out five, 10 years of what cap rates are going to look like at that point in time. And so for our current fund, like our, our, you know, based on conservative projections, it's 12% annualized cash from cash returns and our IRRs, this is based on current properties we own, knowing how they operate, but also we buy the same types of properties in our fund that we that we own. Right, our model is very similar. 20 percent plus uh, IRR over the you know whether it be a five and ten year span that you look at it at, uh, we'd be looking to push twenty percent overall. So, but annualized cash for cash returns is that's the real number, and that's how we analyze them on the front end, and that's also with real debt. Like that's not saying, well, I got this for five percent down, yeah. and this is a forty percent cash for cash return. <laughs> like that's great. But like, what's it really look like when the day comes when you actually got to put real debt on it Yeah, <laughs> and you got to, you know, yeah. So, cool. but yeah, cash awesome. on cash is it, man. That's the real metric that I think everyone should really live by uh, as, as far as what the returns are going to look like. The, the apartment guys have been having a great run and I hope they all continue to have a great run. But when you're looking out five years and you're projecting, you know, selling on a five and a half cap or a six cap, and that's the only way you're going to hit those, those uh, IRR projections, I don't know, man. Like, it, there's a certain point in time where it becomes incredibly risky. It's just like game of hot potato. And, you know, I just I refuse to really play in that space. It's just not 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 of interest to me, especially when there's only like two and three or four percent annualized cash on cash returns at at, at play. So. Makes sense. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling twenty different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities 
struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light doc and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com slash BP. pinefinancialgroup.com slash BP. Makes sense. All right. So... I go, I find a mobile home park, I find somebody who's willing to sell and, and we'll ask about how, how we find those afterwards. But mm-hmm. you buy value add parks. How do you add value if you don't own the homes? Are you like putting like putt-putt ranges in the parks? Are you having like a, putting a little kitchen with a, that's a you good know, idea. somebody flipping <laughs> burgers? Like Wouldn't that. that be awesome? Yeah. Like have have like a commissary would be amazing. No, I love that. I have to I have to run that past the team, man. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it, I, want, really, I want twelve percent of all <laughs> proceeds generated. Yeah, from, right, uh, right. Flipping burgers. I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's really a couple of big common ways. I mean, we always like to say like the low hanging fruit of upside with, with a park. And I'm going to give you an example of a park we're in contract with today. It's up in the Buffalo markets. It's it's literally the nicest park that we'll own. It's the one to two car garages I was telling you about. I mean, it's really nice and. uh, 
the mom and pop that owns it, they've developed it, you know, 35 years ago. It's, it's a gorgeous community and their rents are currently at 260. They just raised them 10 bucks. The market is anywhere from 465 to like 530. Whoa. And, uh, I make the joke with our partners that I don't, I'm scared that we're not going to keep that park as nice as what it is when we take it over. Like, it's just like, cause we don't have to do a thing to it. I mean, it's, it's well-groomed and manicured. So that park there and it's 122 lots, 120 are occupied. And so, I mean, it's for all intents and purposes, it's full. I yeah. mean, it's full. All we have to do is raise rents. Uh, that's literally all we have to do in that park. That isn't, we are overpaying for it a little bit, but we're going to, we can hit our returns with it uh, year one, not a problem. Uh, and that's just raising rents. Now, other ways to add value is a lot of times we'll buy parks that have, um, they'll have maybe some vacant park owned trailers, maybe their rental units at the, you know, what happens commonly with these older mom and pops is they're just not really good at budgeting overall expenses or putting reserves aside. And so they start getting these rental units that get the tenants tear them up, they get them back and it's going to cost them three grand to renovate. And number one, they try to do it themselves and then they get the second and then they get the third and they start stacking up. And before they know it, they've got like eight vacant trailers which is very common, sometimes way more than that, they're sitting there in disrepair, sometimes a couple of years. And so uh, us, we won't pay really much of anything from the trailers, but we'll get them. We'll dump a couple of thousand dollars into each one of them and turn around. And uh, you know, now we've got lot rental on top of any other profit that we might've made on the sale of that trailer. So that's another big way um, to add value. But uh, operationally is probably one of the biggest. I mean, as far as like just normalizing the yearly operating expenses. It's very common that you'll see mom and pops that they run their car through it. They run their health insurance. They, whatever gambling habits they have, you know what I mean? Like literally everything goes in their payroll. Like they're just bad at managing people. So maybe their payroll has got like four employees. Park we bought in Richmond, Virginia, small park, 52 spaces. They had three full-time people on payroll, plus a manager, plus a full-time handyman. So five guys <laughs> where the one handyman should have been doing all the handyman work. He was basically delegating like a property manager. And I'm like, uh-uh. That's not going to work. <laughs> so we literally shaved out like $65,000 off their payroll, off of the, uh, the, the overall expenses of that park, literally just by firing three people and saying, do your job, man. Like you can't hire other people to do it for you. So like that's very common in the space to find them to where it should be a 40% expense ratio, but they're currently operating at 70%. And it, a lot of times it's very easy to, to change that and to bring it back down. So those are just some of the big ways of how we add value. I'd say that. And then the very last way to add value, which is probably the most difficult way to do it is a lot of parks you'll find have empty lots. Like there would be empty lots. Maybe it's a hundred space park and only 70 of them have trailers on them. So you've got 30, you know, sometimes fully developed pads that have hookups and everything is getting trailers in there. You know, meaning like you're going to go buy used trailers or bring new ones in. It's very capital intensive. And it's also just takes time. It takes time to get them moved, to get them set up, to get them permitted and uh, to get them sold off. So that is probably the hardest way to capitalize uh, on the upside, but there's still a good opportunity to do so. Got it. Got to know. So you probably wouldn't buy like a park that was like, I mean, I kind of see them on like, you know, LoopNet or whatever. They're like 90% vacant and they're like tremendous upside, you know, just bring in parts, you know, that's a lot. Yeah, of work. that's challenging. I mean, now if it's like, it depends, you know, it, d it depends because if it was in like Austin, Texas and I could buy it yeah. right. I know that if I put 90 trailers in there, they would move in a heartbeat like Austin, like it would get filled probably in a matter of a year. If it was in like middle of North Carolina somewhere. Absolutely not. Because yeah, they're always in the, like the middle they, of nowhere. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I mean, we own a park up in North Carolina now that we've owned for a couple of years and we're just starting to capitalize on the, uh, the vacant lots up there. It's got 52 vacant, fully developed pads. It's a 131 space uh, community and huge demand right near Raleigh. I mean, just a huge demand for, for housing. And we're at the point now where literally we can, if we get a unit back, I think we still own like 13 units in there. If we get it back, it sells like before it's even like, we don't have to, we haven't renovated like the last three because mm -hmm. the guy's like, I'll take it as is. 
I'll pay you cash. Here you go. Um, so we know that we can move new units when we bring them in. We'll have no problem, you know, occupying in that marketplace. So that yeah. one it didn't scare me to buy, you know, that many empty pads that were there. So is is there a size of park that's too small? Like, you know, 10, 10 lots, 20 lots or, mm-hmm. or is is there like an optimal number? Yeah, I mean, the optimal number that I would say for most people, if you're going to get started, is between probably 30 and 40 lots. You know, the smallest park we own is 35. You know, we, we it's in a great market, really high lot rents. But really, what you want to consider is the ability for you to, to for that park to create enough revenue, generate enough revenue that you can afford to pay an on-site manager. Unless you're going to be the guy, unless you want to go live in the park and actually run it day to day, you want to be able to afford to pay somebody. That means giving them free lot rent and probably paying them a small salary to do that. And so obviously the larger the park, the more opportunity you'll have to, you know, be able to pay someone a reasonable amount to oversee the daily operations. Um, also on top of that, you know, if you're looking at a park, let's say that it's a smaller park, uh, let's say it's 20 spaces and let's say it's on septic systems or a well or whatever. And let's say one of the septics fails in that park and you got to put a new one in, it's going to cost you four grand to put a whole new septic tank and leach field in. That four thousand dollars over that small of a park, I mean, that's going to crush your, you know, your rent. That's going to have a yeah. big impact on your bottom line for the year. Whereas if it was a sixty space park, probably not that big of a deal, right? To to have a four thousand dollar unexpected capital expense. And so, um, some other considerations are how far away you are from it. You know, travel expenses can can eat up uh, a lot of a smaller park's revenue for the year. I mean, if you live in California and you bought a park in South Dakota that we we're talking about and you have to, you know, spend $500 uh, for an air, you know, for airfare and two nights, three nights in a hotel, and it's a small park, that that's a big percentage, proportionally speaking, of your revenue for the year. Whereas Iron Space Park, Sorry, I mean it's just it's it's a drop in the hat. It's not that yeah. big of a deal. So that I mean that's really if it's if it's right next to your house in your same neighborhood, maybe you can manage it yourself. Maybe a ten or twenty space park would be fine. You know, I'm not saying that the, like you shouldn't cut all, you shouldn't look at anything smaller, but you just got to take those other items into consideration. That's really that's good sense. advice. All right, so last yeah. question before we go to the fire round: uh, How do you find mobile home parks? And I know that's a loaded question, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing that we're really, really good at. We pride ourselves on our ability to find great deals. And, um, you know, the common way that a lot of people like just with any other type of real estate is brokers, you know, there's industry related brokers in this niche that that's all they specialize. And I will tell you, that's probably the more challenging way, especially in the real part of the real estate cycle we're in. You pretty much have to fight to get attention because obviously they've got their buyers list and, you know, which they should, they should be selling to their past clients that have bought from them before that they know can execute. And so getting on their radar and for them to, you know, seriously pass you a real good deal, probably slim to none chance that's going to happen. They'll give you like the leftover crumbs, which probably aren't that good of a deal. That's why their real buyers didn't buy it. And so we like to take the more roundabout approach. I don't like begging for deals. And so we've kind of created our own, you know, deal flow or or funnel. And we've got our own database that we've developed uh, in multiple different markets across the country. And uh, we just do direct marketing and we do a lot of cold calling. We do a lot of direct mail. And um, I mean, that is where we have found, trying to think here, I guess probably about 85% of the deals that we own today and that we have in contract even have been a direct contact to an owner. And uh, that works for us. Deal cycles are a little bit longer there because a lot of these people weren't ready to sell. Like when we, when we contacted them, a lot of these times we, we've, I think our longest deal cycle to date is two and a half years. And the first time we've got a response on a direct mail to the time we closed like two and a half years because they're not ready to sell. Got to build a relationship. Most, a lot of times it's emotional with these people. They've owned it for a long time. They want to sell to someone they like. Yep. And so we've gotten really good at just developing rapport and building, establishing relationships with operators, knowing that we're in the business, knowing that when the day comes, They'll think of us. And so we stay in a, we stay in continual contact with them. Christmas cards, Thanksgiving cards, 
happy 4th of July cards, you know, just any reason to stay in front of them so that when the time comes, it's all timing, right? Like we want to be in front of them when they either decide they want to sell or need to sell due to other reasons. And I we want that. them to think of us when that time comes. So that's what we do. That's how we do it. And brokers work out well. They just, it's tough in this market. That's all. So we want yeah. good deals. We, we don't want broker deals like highest and best offer, yep. you know, and everyone, someone's going to overpay for it. I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that mail strategy for any part of the real estate business. I think Absolutely. most people, yeah. when they think about mailing, yeah. they think about yellow mail or postcards. But the idea of just staying in front of somebody's face with holiday holiday cards, I think is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. You know, now there's a couple of cool tools out there. I'm sure you guys are familiar with a uh, Sly Broadcast. No. That's another tool we're starting no, to implement but, in our business. Is no, that the no, one no, where you can there. you call them and then it go it goes straight to their voicemail instead yes. of uh, Yeah. Ah. So you can pre, so you can pre-program um uh, a message, a voicemail, and it drops it on their cell phone. So like, you know, if you're ever out of area and you're like, How did I miss that call? Like I just got a voicemail. It literally does that to them. So they think that they literally just missed your call and they got a voicemail there and it's you saying, Hey, this is just Kevin that's checking in. I haven't talked to you in a while. You know, we'd love to speak with you about your park whenever you have a moment. Give oh, me a man. shout. That's awesome. Yeah. So and you can literally upload a thousand phone numbers and and send that same message to a thousand different people all at once. So it makes it a lot more really accessible to, to stay in contact via phone as well. Um, but I mean, we got like our CRM and we kind of prioritize like who our hot ones are, you know, yeah. the ones that like, we know they're making a decision soon. And so like, we need to put a little bit more emphasis on this guy before <laughs> someone else comes along. So <laughs> that's Sorry, how yeah. it works for us, man. I think the, mo- the, the problem that a lot of people have with direct mail that get into it, they do like one mailer and they yep. don't get a deal yep. out of it and they just stop doing it. Whereas I promise you, like the momentum that get the mem- the momentum doesn't get built until you've done like six, seven, eight, nine, ten mailing campaigns. I mean, and then you'll start like three years down the road, you'll be like, so and so will call you off this mailer you sent him like three years ago, and yep. uh, I held on to this. It's in my drawer. It's like you gotta you gotta get the <laughs> momentum going. You gotta stay consistent with it, um, and just make sure that your message gets to them on the right day. Uh, it's kind of like you know, tire companies do this, and so do credit card companies, right? They send us this stuff all the time, yep. and maybe. I don't know, when you need new tires once every four years or five years, and then maybe you'll look at that flyer that comes like three times a week. Yep. So that's so true. Anyway. It's so true. I, in fact, I just signed up for a credit card a few months ago. I never do those credit card offers. I mean, I've gotten a hundred of them in the past few years, but I finally needed a card. I needed it for a business reason. And it came in the mail and I was like, oh, well, this is a good miles. Like, give me, so I, so I signed up for it. Like it was exactly like it hit me at the exact moment. Yeah. And that's when direct mail that's works. It. That's, so. that's what you got to do, man. Same with the phone calls. I mean, yeah. I, I've, we, that deal I was the thing about North Carolina with the 131 lots. That was a cold call. And uh, we got the guy at the right time. He had just taken this property back. He had owner financed like three years prior and just gone through a long, long suit. He was, he was getting older. His daughter didn't want to deal with it anymore. I mean, like, I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. And yeah. we got really lucky because that was the first call we made to that guy. And um, he's like, I was talking to my daughter earlier about this today. Yeah, we're, we're definitely open to having a discussion. It took a year for us to close it, but, um, you know, with the timing was right. The That's time awesome. was right on that. Yeah. I love it. Love it. All right. Well, let's, let's shift gears here. We're going to talk about more, uh, more mobile home park questions here, but this is in the segment that we call our fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right. These are, these are the, the qu- short questions that come direct from the bigger pockets forums, which of course our users can go get to by going to biggerpockets.com forums. However, today's, Fire round is a little bit different. These are all questions that came from selfishly greedy Brandon Turner here because I, these are these are my I'm biggest questions. I'm like these look. Yeah, these different. are the these are the questions that I have about buying my next mobile home park. So and that we did not cover today. 
uh, because I could go but, post all way, these in the forums, but I'm just going to ask them right to you. listening, here, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> all right, what are we going to do? Send me any of your leads from mobile home parks. <laughs> and then Josh going to wholesale them to, to me. Josh. Yeah, no, I will wholesale. Send them to me. <laughs> Come on, I'll, I'll make it happen. <laughs> and just, just that would that would be so. Yeah, great. that would be so great. You could hold that over us, Josh. Dave. He would love that. Josh I'll, loves I'll, the power. Well, no, we'll park. We'll, <laughs> send send me your deals. You got a good mobile home park. Send it to me. I'll send it to these guys. We'll all get in together. Well, ah, there we go. I like you guys. They're going to bring it to me anyway. So just cut out the middleman. <laughs> Wow, it's like three sharks circling around. <laughs> this is great. All right, number one. Should I buy a, a park with septic and well or only city and sewer for my first deal? You should be open-minded to it. Just just do your due diligence. I mean, make sure that you get third-party professionals in there to inspect them. We're okay. buying two right now that are on septic and wells, and there's a ton of uh, septics in both these parks that are bigger parks. And, um, and it's costing a lot of money to do the inspections, but it's worth it because we've uncovered a few things and uh, we've got both sellers spending a good bit of money uh, fixing repairs and doing things that were deferred over a period of time. So just do your due diligence. Yes, they're a little bit more dangerous. Uh, you should know what your backup plan is. Should they, you know, a lot of things you got to find out. Like if it fails, what happens? Can I put a new septic in? There's some areas that have regulatory um, challenges in place that you wouldn't even be able to put a new septic in. You might lose that lot. Or if you had to put a new septic in, is there enough ground there, averse and soil based on current zoning? Because you're going to have to basically, uh, you're going to have to conform to current zoning now. Because you know, back when it was built, maybe you needed 3,000 square feet of empty space to put a septic in. Now you might need six. So is there enough room to do it? So lots of considerations like that, that you need to think about when there's private utilities involved. And you know, how far away is public water and sewer? Should the, the the last resort be to connect to it? If it's five miles away, you know, you might not have a backup plan. So yeah. you, you got to think about those things. Yeah, right on. All right. All right. How do I convert a, t a tenant rented home to a tenant owned home? You talked about that. Um, yeah. how, how do you actually make that happen? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of as simple or as hard as what it sounds in terms of, you know, you've got renters and then you've got people that truly want to be a homeowner. And then you have renters that think they want to be a homeowner, but probably really not. Like, it sounds like a, a great dream for them. Wasn't there a dream? You just put it in their head and really at the end of the day, they're still renters. So what you need to do is you need to be able to determine which category they fit in. Are they just renters? If so, even if you do like a rent to own to them, you're still in a rental. It's like you're probably going to get it back. They're not going to make it through the entire program. So your goal is to basically be able to determine who the real home buyer is. And that mean, if that means that you have a renter in there now and you want to sell that home, then you just if you've got a yearly lease, you wait until the lease ends and do a non-renewal. If there is just a month to month in place, you can do a non-renewal right away. Give them the adequate notice based on that state and then get the home ready for sale. And then, you know, whether you want to sell it for cash to an end buyer or do like a rent to own type strategy, both are very common. That's what you do. And, you know, we've taken over entire communities. Uh, one in question is uh, one in Alabama. It had 45 70, I think, or 68 space park, uh, but it came with 45 homes. That was all that was in there. And the biggest conversion I've ever done, and we're about halfway through it now. And uh, I would tell you that we had to do more non-renewals of leases than we anticipated. We thought we'd be able to convert more than what we did of the existing renters. But at the end of the day, the renters were just renters and most of them just yeah. need to go. And so um, it, sometimes you have to kind of plan for a worst case scenario of like a couple months of down cash flow. I don't expect that every renter wants to own a home because it's, what I found is 80% of them, they're renting because they don't like fixing anything and they don't, they don't want any additional responsibility above and beyond what they already have. So, so this is go. related to question number three then is, uh, this is a very specific question. Would you buy an all park owned home park? So I mean, every property is a rental. 
a 42 unit in Florida. Oh, <laughs> very oh, specific. Wow, this is very specific. This is very specific. So this is a deal that came What's across. The address, bro? Yeah, I might give it. No, like I, this came across my desk last week. You probably saw it. I'm sure, maybe. Uh, and it was like a 40 some unit and down in, in Florida, <laughs> uh, where the hurricane just went through, but it didn't get t- didn't get hit by the hurricane. And uh, supposedly nothing bad, but it's all park owned. And so like I look at it and I'm Mm -hmm. like, the numbers make sense. 20% cash on cash return as a rental. It makes perfect sense. But then if I start piecing them out as, you know, selling them off, now the rent drops a whole bunch. It doesn't make as much sense anymore, right? Yeah, you shouldn't be capitalizing the rental portion of the homes because, again, you got a depreciating asset there. And if you actually capitalize that rental portion and applied an actual value to it, a multiple to it, you're going to find that – it's going to be way higher than what that damn trailer is really worth. Yeah. Seriously, like you're probably you're probably really paying like twenty thousand dollars per each of those trailers, and they're probably older homes. If they're in Florida, yep. they're probably older, and if they've been rentals a long time, they're probably not worth more than a thousand bucks a pop, or maybe maybe some are worth a little bit more than that. But so you just want to be careful. Like it's really two different businesses. You really want to look at the the lot rental income of the park and just really pu- pay more what I like to call like a Kelly Blue Book value or whatever you want to call it for the homes themselves. Like. What should you be paying for the homes knowing that you're not going to lose money when you turn around and sell? Like, what can you yep. just get in and out of them? Don't worry about profiting from that side of the business, but definitely do not capitalize the rental side of that park. And, you know, and some other considerations, if you wanted to buy it, if, if you still were considering it, I would start looking at the age of the homes, how many bedrooms and bathrooms, what size are they, what kind of demographic are you be catering to? Are, are they all like one and two bedroom homes that are smaller like and they sit on small lots that are really close together and dense, meaning like if you want to bring in some bigger, newer model homes, they're not going to fit or you're going to end up using two spaces instead of just one. So, I mean, lots of considerations that you have to look at with that park. And then also, who's your end buyer? I can promise you that more like larger operators and owners do not like that model, the rental model. And um, and so your exit strategy might uh, might be a halter a little bit and your end buyer is going to be probably someone that you're going to have to offer financing to or, you know, smaller time local investor. A lot of banks don't like it either. They don't like the yeah. rental homes. Um, yeah, right they just don't, don't want to have involvement in it. Some might, but most don't. Most yeah. don't. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, yeah, be, be careful with something like that. Careful, Not that you Brandon. can't make money. <laughs> yeah. Just be, just be with careful. That, with that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. being careful. <laughs> All right. Uh, Last question of the fire round. And we are, we are running slightly long. So we're going to try and make this one quick. How do you build relationships with owners or sellers? Got any tips? You'd be nice to them. (laughs) No, no, no. no. I mean, obviously like just, just with any, anything, I mean, this is like sales 101. I mean, right. Find commonalities, find things in common, you know, compliments go a long way, complimenting their part, complimenting their, you know, the the beautiful community they've, they've, run over these years. I mean, really, I just, I keep it very lighthearted, but just find something that we have in common, you know, um, and, uh, the stick with it. And I, I tell you that the, the biggest thing for me is the CRM. I, I document every conversation I have and I make very specific notes in there about what we talked about, because now if you had hundreds of people you've talked to, you forget. And yep. so that way I can pick back up on that because they don't, re- they don't forget, but I, you know, I, I would forget having that many conversations. So I'd call back and be like, how the fishing go with your, your, you know, last yeah. time we talked, you were going to go fishing with your son. I mean, do you guys catch anything? And I know you've probably been a million times since, but you were just mentioning how excited you were to take that new job out, job boat out that you got. How'd that go? You know, just little stuff like that. You know, my dentist um, does that every time I go to the dentist, they're like, yeah, how was your trip to Disney world? And I'm like, you remembered. No, they didn't. They yeah. write that down in their little CRM or their folder or whatever. Awesome. Yeah. But it yeah. makes every time awesome. I'm like, wow, they think about me. So anyway, yeah. I think that's, by the way, so the last question at what fire on, I was going to ask was CRM. What do you use? Podio? We use it. No, we actually don't. We know we're, we're starting, we're trying to transition into Podio right now so that we can have a more inclusive system that runs a little bit more of our back end. but we're, we're still probably months away from having that, that full, fully realized. So 
We're very basic. We use Insightly. I mean, because what we use it for right now okay. is uh, it's just pretty basic in nature, but uh, we do need to beef it up and uh, Podio is going to be the route that we go. Yeah. But, but, but Insightly, cool. I think we have uh, it's very, you can get a free version of it. I think we have like, I don't know, five or six team members on it or something like that. So maybe it's 30 or 40 bucks a month. Very cool. Nice. Very cool. But I like awesome. it. It does its, does its job. It does its job. You know what I mean? Like any CRM, there's a million CRM. So yeah, if, if you're just going to use it for just basic follow-up, you know, Podio is pretty elaborate in order to customize it to your needs. And so you don't even need, don't get like stuck in the weeds yeah. would be my advice. If you're just getting in there, you need some basic follow-up techniques and, and software, go get a free version of Insightly or I don't know, there's a bunch of other ones out there that are probably just as good, if not better. Awesome. Cool. All cool. right. Well, let's transition to the very last segment of the show and then we'll get everyone out of here. Uh, the last segment, which we lovingly refer to as our famous four. All right. Let's get to the famous four. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every week and we're going to throw them at you. Number one, what is your favorite real estate related book? I've got a ton of them. And so like I, I knew this question was going to come, but it's what every real estate investor needs to know about cash flow by Frank Gallinelli. And uh, it's a dry read. It's not exciting. It's not going to keep you up at night because you can't wait to finish the next chapter. But it's all the common sense that you need to understand all the key uh, measurement tools and metrics that are used in commercial real estate analysis. It's here and it's actually well written. It's it's not it's actually it's, it's it could be way drier. He does a pretty good job about just yeah. making it easy read. So I'd say that one hands down. Uh, probably had a, a, one of the largest impacts on my life many, many years ago when I first read it. Cool. And we had awesome. Frank on our podcast four and a half years ago, back on episode number four. So yeah, if you want to listen to that. First. Yeah, I yeah. think I, I had him Way on like three years ago. Yeah. yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Like yeah, Frank. check those out. Like Frank, yeah, good guy. I like Frank. Yeah, he's a guy. I mean, I think he still teaches at Columbia University. The guy's still in the yeah. business. He has a great software program out there. And um, yeah, he knows his stuff. And he does. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Favorite business book. And again, I got a million of those. I would never say I have a favorite, but this is one that I read. It's probably about a year and a half ago that I read. It's called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. Phenomenal book for those that haven't read it. Again, I got a whole bookshelf of stuff that I love that I've, that, I, that would go up there in my top you know, five list. But this is one that I was looking over there and I'm like, that, that's a great book. I've read it probably three times and it's phenomenal. So Cool. I've not heard of that one. That's, I'll yeah. definitely check it out. Yeah. What do you do for fun when you're not you know, hanging out at the trailer park? Yeah, that's it, man. <laughs> With my trailer park buddies, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a young family. I've got a, a, a lovely wife and two kids that uh, I spend a ton of time with. But as far as like um, hobbies, I, I'm a big cyclist, so I do a lot of uh, bike riding. So I do long distance like bike tours and hundreds of miles here and there, hundreds of miles there, all over the place. So that's one of my big hobbies that takes up a lot of my, I guess, my free time aside from family and business. Awesome. Cool. All right. What, what do you yeah. think? Last question for me. What do you think sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail or never get started? I think actually the answer to the question is like part of the actual question is like giving up, literally giving up prematurely and not pushing through those points to, that looks like failure. That's really just a roadblock or an obstacle that you need to work through. Everyone goes through challenges in their business whether it's in the very beginning, in the middle, at the end, whatever, man, it's just, it, it's, it goes back to the whole problem solver thing. It's like, you make money to be a problem solver. You've got a problem, get a solution. You know, don't harp on it. Don't, you know, don't, don't give up over it. Just find a solution because there is one, you know, I don't know what it is, but you figure that out. Right. And that's, that's, that's how you push forward. So I think that's it, man. Just being able to persevere, I think is the biggest thing. Just knowing that there's tomorrow and tomorrow probably will provide the answer if you don't give up today. Oh, I like that. That's great. Very, very good. All right. Last question before we let you go. Where can people find more about you? How can they link up with you? 
Yeah, the two best places uh, is my my personal website, kevinbup.com. They can you know get links to all my different podcasts. I do two weekly podcast shows, one on commercial real estate, one on mobile home park investing. And then uh, our company website, if they want to read more about us there and learn about what we do in the mobile home park space, is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. So those are the two best ways to find out more about me and connect. Very awesome. cool. And I definitely recommend the podcast. Uh, both of them actually are fantastic. So keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Kevin. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a lot of fun, man. I've been looking forward to it. So thanks yeah. a lot. Sweet. All awesome. Right. Thank care. you, Kevin. All right, guys. That was Kevin Bupp. Big thanks to Kevin. That was a cool show. Obviously, so cool. Brandon was highly invested <laughs> in the results of that show. I was. Because I got yeah. four, I got, like I said, I got 40 days to find something or whatever it is from today. So I'm, uh, I'm looking, but I, yeah, I just, every time I, we talk to somebody on the show here, we've done a few others, uh, brought them on the show here, uh, talk about mobile home parks. Are we going to do this, do this the next six shows? Are we going to, we have a lot of mobile, home, no, you don't. but every okay. show, every show, uh, next, yeah, every selfish. show is selfish, selfish, right? In some regard. Uh, but I mean like we, every time we bring out a mobile home park invest on the show, I'm always, I leave those interviews going. I love that. It's just, it's, that's why I chose that niche. That's why I want to buy one. So I've got 90 days to the end of the year, 40, 40 some to identify and the rest to buy. Cause that was one of my goals nice. I set in J- January 1st of last year. I wrote down, I will buy a 50 unit plus mobile home park this year. So make it happen. I'm make telling everyone now I'm going to feel stupid if I don't get it. So I got to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, what's your end of year you goal, should, Josh? You, you should just feel stupid. I do. A lot. Who you are, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like when you go through life in a continual state of feeling stupid, like you're never surprised when things get more well, stupid. Right. right? You, it's like easy. You're sta- if, if you've yeah. got a standard that is so low, yeah, if you just keep anything it, that happens is a win. It's a win. I'm always winning. It's really good. <laughs> That's great. Hey, what's That's your awesome. goal? What's your, got any fun end of year goals? Um, honestly, I haven't really spot. thought about it. I haven't really thought about it at all. Well, next week, I'm going to ask you that question, which we're recording tomorrow next week's show. <laughs> That's great. Well, <laughs> you got to give me some time. Yeah, think about that. Time. End of your goals, and we're going to find out what Josh yeah. Dorkin wants to do. Hey. All right, guys. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening. Great show, Brandon, once again. Looking forward to next week. We're, we're, we're getting close to 250. Yeah, yeah big old 250. We all know what that means. Nothing. Uh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> pat, pat on the back. Pat and, on the back. Right. A quarter of a thousand. I was going to say a hundred, but that's again, oh, no. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised we've, we've made it this long. <laughs> Me too. Well, yeah. thank you. I'm, I'm getting out of here. I got to go find myself a park. All right. So. Hey, listen, great chatting. You guys, thank you for listening. This is show 246 of the bigger pockets podcast. Until next time, I'm Josh Dorkin signing off. You're listening to bigger pockets radio, simplifying real estate for investors, large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. It's time for it's time for it's time for the Random Five. All right, one more segment of the show which we'd like to throw in here at the end. It's called our Random Six, and uh, we're just gonna throw these at you. Number one. These are completely random, non-real estate, just to get to know you more. All right. What are you freakishly Go good at? Riding my bike. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. All right. If you can master any instrument on earth, what would it be? The guitar. Acoustic guitar, man. Josh just sneezed into Whoa. the microphone. Yeah, what's, what's, what's happening? Yeah, now here? he's like Wish dying. I could master that. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, did that come through? It came through a little bit. There you go. <laughs>
<laughs> do we want to redo that? No, no, it was good. Again. Uh, I, think we I, couldn't contr- I couldn't control myself. I, I muted it just late. Not in time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Man, guitar. It's all about being original. Yeah, yeah. You want to learn Ooh. the guitar. Yeah, guitar would be that instrument. Yeah, acoustic yeah. Acoustic or electric? Acoustic. All right. Sure. You and I, you're going you're to help me buy this mobile home park, and I'm going to teach you how to play acoustic guitar. That's that's our deal. Yeah, you play guitar. My <laughs> parents do. forced me into playing the trumpet when I was a kid. I'm yeah, like, I don't want to play the trumpet. Like, I play the hey, trumpet. Your grandfather when I was has kid. one. Take this. You're playing it. We're not buying you guitar. I'm like, <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, we're going to, we're going to do some jamming after I got my, my park here. So, all right. Well, I don't know how to play the trumpet anymore. Just so you know, like I quit playing in like 11th grade. So I don't I'll bring two guitars. We'll have fun. It'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, what was your very, very first job? Ooh, a paper boy. I mean like real job where I actually had like a paycheck while I was a paper boy when I was 12 years old. So I had a paper out my neighborhood. That's very cliche. That was, is that a real job? I mean, is that (laughs) a real job? That was a paycheck associated with it. Okay. It is. I call that. Cool. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question. What are you going to be for Halloween? I think Kevin Bupp. I don't know. Have any of kids? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, am I that bad dad that doesn't dress up? I dress my kids up, but I don't dress myself up. So, oh, you're no fun. Next question. Unless you guys, unless you guys <laughs> guilt me into being something else. Gosh. <laughs> Hang my head low. <laughs> I, I want to know, since Josh came up with that question, Josh, what are you going to be for Halloween? I, my, my children are, uh, one is in the Ewok. One okay. is uh, Princess Leia, and one is uh, what's the new girl? Um, I forget her name in Star Wars. And uh, I believe I'm going to be Han Solo. I was thinking Yoda, you know, for the height. Looks like you're a better man than I. I guess I better <laughs> step up my game a little bit. You better step it up, man. Come on, come on. All right. Next All right. question. Uh, how long before your flight do you arrive at the airport? About 45 minutes to an hour. If I have kids more than that, but if it's by myself, I'm normally, uh, I'm a light packer. I, I carry, I don't check any bags. So I'm pretty, you know, 45 minutes or so. All right. Nice. Nice. All right. Yeah, what are your fun. top three apps on your cell phone? Ooh, that's a good question. Credit Karma is one. It's an amazing app. Um, have you guys ever used it? I've had some, it, yeah. I've learned some things about credit scores uh, over the past like six months. And um, Credit Karma really allows you, it's free and allows you to keep a, uh, does soft pools. And so it's free and does soft pools of uh, Experian and uh, Experian and Equi- or TransUnion and Equifax. And uh, just really let you know when your your different credit card companies are reporting to the bureaus because like you, you really got to get the timing right. I pay our, I pay my credit cards off every month, but if if I didn't pay one off before they reported it and it shows I have like I'm using 80% of my available limit, which I do often, then your score gets hit in a big way. So it really allows you to stay in tune with when they're reporting and uh, and also if, if you get any inquiries that like you know that that weren't yours, it'll give you an alert to it. So that's a cool one. And then um I don't know. I got to look at my phone here because I, I have to think of the other ones. Facebook. I don't know. Facebook, right? We're always on Facebook. Sure. Unfortunately, it eats up too much time. And then actually Tony Robbins got a great app on here. It's just got a lot of his videos on it. About, it's called Breakthrough. Yeah, it's a free app. It's got a ton of his ton of free trainings on it, tons of free videos from Tony. I like Tony's stuff a lot. And so um, if I'm just like, you know, in a car or something like that, or if I'm traveling and, uh, you know, I got some downtime, I'll uh, play one of his videos and one of his training series that's on there. So those are probably the top three that I use right now. Cool. Let's check that up. All right. Well, thanks for participating in the random six. Yeah. Thanks guys. Really appreciate (laughs) it. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. 
Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.